Murderers are often categorised by type, serial killer, mass murderer and the like. It is perhaps an erroneous perception that females commit less violent murders than males, utilising such methods as smothering or poison, rather than guns or knives or even physical force, which are typically associated with murders committed by males. This episode we will be covering a serial killer who was also a family annihilator, but more intriguingly, the only male ever allegedly diagnosed with a disorder usually attributed to females. This is the case of Jack Barron, and this is Murder Me on Monday. Hello everyone, it's Monday, so it's another episode of the Murder Me on Monday podcast. Hello mother. Hello. So before we start today's episode, quick shout out to Dakota over on Patreon. If other people want to show you some love and support, you can find the link to the Patreon in the description below. By now, everyone knows what Patreon is. Exclusive stuff, extra stuff, stuff at the end of a regular episode. Good stuff. I've said before that I have dozens of cases queued up, and thank you to those that still recommend. They are in my files, I promise. Munchausen by proxy. We have covered one very well-known case, Beverly Allitt, back in episode 81, a classic case. Going to start the case with a question for you, Cameron. Do you know who Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard are? I know it's weird that I have a true crime podcast, but I don't know much about true crime. Mm. I've got a weird category. Um, I'm familiar with a lot of these names, just fire osmosis, them being mentioned and being vaguely connected to the, I want to say industry. But the only Dee Dee that I know is the sister from the kids cartoon Dexter's Laboratory and Sweet D from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They're the only Ds that I know. I've never heard of them, I don't think. Ah. Although it's familiar, but I don't know why. I couldn't tell you anything about them. Right. I'll give you a brief outline. I'm pretty sure most people know. But in 2015, the sheriff's deputies in Greene County, Missouri, found the body of Claudine, known as Dee Dee Blanchard. She was face down in the bedroom of a house and there was a pool of blood from stab wounds. There was no sign of her daughter, Gypsy Rose, who was 23, according to her. She had chronic conditions including leukaemia, asthma and muscular dystrophy and who had the mental capacity of a seven-year-old due to brain damage as a result of premature birth. None of that was true. Gypsy and her boyfriend killed Dee Dee. Gypsy got 10 years, her boyfriend got life on the main charge and 25 years on another. Hugely famous case, especially now being in the news so much over the last few weeks and the documentary being released. And depending on where in the world you are, it's on Lifetime or crime investigation channels. I know it's called factitious disorder now, but frankly, it doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? It's a disorder based on a fictitious person, which is probably why it's been renamed the way it has. Baron Munchausen is a fictional German nobleman created by a German writer called Rudolf Eirich Rasp in his 1785 book. Character is loosely based on another German actual Baron. Are you not going to tell me about Dee Dee? Or the Gypsy Danger, whatever her name was. The robot from Pacific Rim. I don't know what happened. You didn't tell me anything. You just told me someone was killed at some point and they didn't have leukaemia. Yeah, I will explain it all later, I promise. Going back to the Baron, the story is loosely a pile of wild tales that no one would have actually believed even 230 years ago. Riding on a cannonball, 
fighting a 40-foot crocodile and such like, even going to the moon, which in 1785 was in the realms of modern science fiction writing. The by proxy is attention-seeking by making someone close to them ill or requiring medical attention and thereby basking in the reflected attention given to the patient. The Gypsy Rose case. We're not going to touch it as a podcast episode, although I will touch on it for the case autopsy for Cameron. However, that case being in the news is what brought me to this case that I had on the back burner, simply because whilst Munchausen by proxy doesn't always result in deaths, this case did. And throw in all the other labels, well, it's a thesis waiting to be written by someone. Why was Dee Dee and that shoved into the news recently? Gypsy Rose was released from prison. The boyfriend okay. is still in prison. I'll explain a bit later. Munchausen by proxy, however, could be a complete red herring. I thought somehow it didn't fit. I got sucked in by a headline, but maybe not. I'm honestly not sure, but this is an intriguing case nonetheless. There are a couple of podcasts, a few YouTube videos, also a book, but I don't think there have been any documentaries, which is very surprising considering what else this guy has allegedly gotten up to. It's an older case, hence why some of the information is sparse. But let us start in California on the 21st of October 1961 when Jack Kenneth Barron was born in Castro Valley. His dad, called Elmore, but for some reason was known as Nick, apparently was a railway engineer and rather strict when he was around, but he was away a lot for work. Jack's mum, Roberta, was much more lenient and he was a bit of a mummy's boy, at least growing up. As is often the case, Jack idolised his dad, who didn't appear to have much time for him. Roberta was very religious, Catholic, yet she and Jack's father divorced when Jack was around 13. Roberta decided to move back to her roots with Jack so they moved from Orange County to Sacramento, about 500 miles away. I assume Dad stayed there at the time, but I understand that at least up until three years ago, he lived in Oregon, never remarried either. Jack saw his dad even less after the move, and Jack and his mother did clash, but they only had each other at the time and initially had to survive on welfare until Roberta managed to get a part-time job at a local supermarket. There, Roberta meets a chap with the surname Butler, and after five years, they decide to marry and move to a place called Port Costa, about 60 miles from Sacramento and right on the coast. Obviously, as Jack was still a minor, he goes along too. His mum and stepdad carry on working in a supermarket and Jack even joins as a student or normal full-time worker, I don't know. There is nothing in Jack's background. No school fights or setting things on fire. A loner who was fairly quiet and didn't shine at anything. An invisible kid, really. Jack still idolised his dad wanted to work on the railways like him, collected all sorts of memorabilia to do with trains. 
In his 20s, he does manage to get a job on the railways as a labourer. But When does he get diagnosed with autism? Bros into trains, that ain't normal, he's got autism. <laughs> None that I'm aware of. So he's working as a labourer, but ended up with some sort of injury after two years and he had to leave. Must have been serious, as he actually managed to claim disability benefits for a while before going back to work at the supermarket when he was around 24 years old. Jack meets Irene K. Paget through mutual friends in the February of 1986. Irene was a native of Reno, came from a large family, had previously married, though no children, and was four years older than Jack. Irene had had a fairly good life. Although her father was in the military and they moved a lot, even spending some of her childhood in Germany, she always adapted well, but was a country girl at heart, wanted the white picket fence and a family like her parents. Hence why she married a year after leaving high school after spending her teenage years in a place called Fallbrook, north of San Diego. When her then husband decided after a couple of years of marriage that it wasn't what he wanted, Irene decided she needed a fresh start and moved to Sacramento. She took along a good friend with her and had relatives living in Sacramento. Irene soon found herself a job as a receptionist and settled into city life when she meets Jack. After eight months of dating, they move in together in a place called Mount Shasta, which is over 200 miles north of Sacramento. Irene's family obviously get to meet Jack. They were not enamoured of him. He seemed childish and immature and just somehow didn't have normal social interactions with people. So he might have been autistic? You may have a point before (laughs) I read this. (laughs) Very hard to express, but they were not fans. However, Irene seemed happy and that's what mattered to them. In 1988, Irene finds out she's pregnant. Jack duly proposes and they have a smallish wedding of about 50 people in Mount Shasta. Do you know if it's planned at all? I imagine it'd be hard to find out. No idea. No idea. Irene's family get to spend time with Jack's mother, Roberta, and are very taken with her. Nice lady was the verdict. 8th of January 1989, Irene and Jack's first son, Jeremy John Barron, was born. That same year, the family moved back to Sacramento. Mount Shasta was um, quite remote. There wasn't much going on there. There wasn't any opportunities It wasn't going anywhere. That's why they moved back to Sacramento. They buy a new property, a three-bedroomed house on the south side of Sacramento. It's never actually clear how they managed to afford it. Jack only works part-time at a supermarket. No idea if Irene had a job with a newborn. But it's the late 1980s. Mortgages are being thrown at people. Irene's parents seem to have believed that they got the house by being on some sort of low-start shared ownership. Plus, Roberta may have chipped in. A lot. Irene, to help finances, becomes a childminder in the new house before giving birth to their second child, a girl called Ashley Ann Barron, in March of 1990. Jack had changed, though, to those that knew him. 
didn't care at all what he said if it hurt someone's feelings and also really didn't like the children. He didn't like them getting naturally dirty, would fly into a rage when they played outside and got grubby. Jack also becomes very fastidious. If Irene vacuumed, he'd follow behind her and rub out the vacuum cleaner tracks. Funny now, that's a sign that you have a cleaner and it's considered a good thing to have those lines in your carpets. Cleaners often post patterns online that they vacuumed into it to show the skills. Reminds me of cake decorating somehow. The marriage between Jack and Irene wasn't going well. Irene started to do what therapists told you to do back then. Write to your spouse to get your side across without getting interrupted or arguments starting. I get why it's suggested, but the written word gets misinterpreted in any form. Look how often a text can get you into trouble if you misplace a comma or an emphasis is placed on the wrong word. In a letter to Jack, Irene wrote, I am really sorry you are unhappy right now. I have a hard time believing the only reason for this is my inability to keep the house exactly the way you like it. It really upsets me when I hear you talking about divorce. She even told her friends that she thought Jack was having an affair. Yet, after a weekend at home with Jack, she told her friends she was wrong and he wasn't having an affair. Jack, on the other hand, had been talking about divorce to his friends and had even gone as far as saying he wasn't up for a fight and a messy divorce which would result in him doing away with Irene first. 8th of June, 1992. One of the neighbours had planned on leaving her child with Irene while she went to work. The neighbour knocked around 10 past 7 and got no reply. She had to leave her child with someone else, but was worried Irene or someone should have been at the house. So the neighbour goes back around 8am. Again, no one answers the door. But eventually, after looking around, the woman realises she can hear and then see through the window little Jeremy. After some coaxing, the neighbour manages to get Jeremy to open a sliding door. And he tells her he can't wake mummy up. Ashley then joins her brother with the neighbour as they make their way to the bedroom to find Irene. Lots of places say Irene was found dead in bed. Technically correct, but it doesn't paint the full picture. Jack and Irene had a waterbed. It is the 1980s by now. Irene is laid on it but her feet are on the floor, as if she sat on the end of it and then just fell back. Irene's right arm was at her side, but her left arm was over her chest, pointing towards the right-hand side with the palm facing up. That's quite a tight movement. Irene was wearing a pink nightie with pink fuzzy slippers, which were still on her feet, but the pillow across her face said something was wrong. The neighbour lifted the pillow. Irene's eyes were open and fixed and unmoving and she had a trickle of blood from her nose with blood being visible under her head. The neighbour calls emergency services who ask her to try CPR before paramedics get there. 
The neighbour tries to move Irene to do as asked, but Irene's arms are fixed, so rigor mortis had set in, and it's obviously futile. The neighbour takes Ashley and Jeremy back to her house, and emergency services are left at the scene rather puzzled. There is no evidence of foul play, no gunshot wound, no substantial amount of blood, no apparent bruising, no visible evidence of strangulation. Jack arrives back at the house around 9.30am to be informed that his wife had been found dead. He collapsed in the street crying and asked to see Irene. Police questioned Jack. You were at work last night. Yes, Jack said. Where do you work? Lucky supermarket. You worked all night? Yes. What time do you leave to go to work? Around 11. Did you see Irene at any time after that? No, I was at work. She was all right when you saw her? Yes. Any medical problems? None that I know of. She'd had a little cold recently and been coughing a bit, a few headaches, but nothing really bad. The pathologist thought that Irene had probably died before 2am, possibly a few hours earlier, and gave the fact that she had makeup still on. To him, that meant she must have died before she went to bed, as women don't go to bed in makeup, which proves this guy had very limited experience of women. The pathologist thought that having a pillow over her head meant nothing, even though there was makeup transfer on the pillow, because people who have headaches often cover over their faces. The petechial hemorrhaging around Irene's eyes also meant nothing too. I had a headache from eye rolling at this point. They have no cause of death. It's all very sad and everyone rallies around Jack and the children, the usual casseroles, etc. Irene's family also rallied round. One brother even sending Jack $100 a month to help with the costs of raising the children, as they were all under the impression money was very tight. The neighbours didn't have to feed Jack and the children for long. You remember that affair that Jack absolutely wasn't having? The woman moves in with Jack a month after Irene died. Everywhere calls her his girlfriend. At the time, he claimed, no idea what she said, it was a co-worker with childcare problems like him and they were helping each other out. Jack, the clean, neat freak, must have been tearing his hair out with four young children aged four to eight, plus a woman who obviously wasn't as compliant as Irene living under his roof. It didn't last long before the woman moved out. She had seen another side to Jack. His temper was explosive and him screaming at little Jeremy, who was having a small child tantrum, kicking a wall and screaming mummy over and over, which is completely understandable. The child is totally traumatised, having just lost his mother. He shouted at him, if you don't shut up, I'll send you to where mummy is. This wasn't the sort of father figure this woman wanted for her children. Jack then hires a woman to come around around lunchtime to look after the children while he sleeps before going on to his night shift at the supermarket. Multiple places have one surname for the woman, yet court papers have another. It's not relevant, but it's annoying. 
Who looked after the children overnight is never explained as far as I can tell. 7th of February 1993, around 1pm, the childminder arrives at the house. No one answers the door and as it's 1993, she goes home and rings the house. Jack answers and says, oh, I must have been in the shower. The woman goes back and both she and Jack look into the children's room and it looks as though they are both taking a nap. Jack tells the sitter that Jeremy hadn't been feeling well and Jack had given him some cough medicine and that Jack was also going to bed. A couple of hours later, the sitter goes back to check on Jeremy as no four-year-old would normally nap that long and he hadn't moved. He was dead. The same pathologist that performed Irene's autopsy performed little Jeremy's. The court papers said Jeremy had no rigour or lividity, meaning he had not been dead for more than a few hours. The pathologist could not determine what caused Jeremy's death, but could not exclude suffocation or a heart or brain condition causing sudden death. The only significant finding was a petechial hemorrhaging in one eye. This was consistent, though, with a CPR effort performed on Jeremy or with suffocation. It's well known in forensic pathology that a child can be suffocated or smothered without leaving much, if any, evidence. Jack used this new tragedy to benefit himself once again. Jack was a big fan of Winona Judd, the country singer. Winona was told by her fan club president that a fan in California had lost his wife and young son as the two had died of what was believed to be natural causes and was raising his daughter by himself and wanted to go backstage to meet her. Winona said sure. And there are pictures out there of Jack with little Ashley and his arm around Winona wearing a t-shirt emblazoned with Wise Guys, spelt W-Y. She actually met up with Jack twice. Ashley is three years old, has lost her mother and her brother, and no one knows why. Doctors want to do tests, make sure she is fit and well and nothing untoward happening with her. On the 3rd of May 1993, an electrocardiogram was performed on little Ashley at a local hospital after the family paediatrician referred her. Overall, results were normal, although doctors did find a very minor abnormality. Absolutely nothing to worry about. Ashley then went back on the 19th of May for a heart ultrasound, a much more in-depth test to check out that minor abnormality. These tests came back as normal. Just to be super, super safe, doctors recommended that Ashley take home a portable heart monitor which would record her heart rhythm for 24 hours. The device would allow doctors to see what was happening to her heart while she slept. Jack never collected the device, never followed it up at all. The hospital tried four or five times to get him to come in. Ashley goes to stay with her grandmother, Roberta, and her husband for a few weeks, probably to give Jack some respite from it all. And what child doesn't love spending time with grandma and grandpa? 
Jack has to have a sitter to look after Ashley overnight while he works. He employs someone. This lady had been doing it for years. Very experienced. When, on the evening of the 6th of August 1994, Jack tells her that Ashley is in bed asleep and the woman checks in on her at midnight and finds Ashley sleeping and on her side. But then when she checked on her again at 4am, Ashley is on her back, cold and stiff and very dead. Again, nothing is found at autopsy that could remotely explain this. Different pathologist to the one that did Irene's and Jeremy's. Jack is telling everyone that his wife and children have all died from natural causes. He sells the house and goes to live with his mother in a place called Benicia, about 60 miles south of Sacramento. Jack is finally going to realise his dream. He has been accepted on a training course to become an assistant conductor for Amtrak. 8th of February 1995, Ashley's death certificate is amended. It stated that the cause remained undetermined, but that homicidal violence cannot be excluded. Huge red flag. They know, but can't prove anything, surely. Jack, however, is the unluckiest sod in the world, when on the 27th of February, he finds his mother dead. Her death is, however, investigated by a completely different police force, and a different pathologist. And finally, her death is ruled as a homicide. Roberta had been smothered. Police now set up a task force to look into the unluckiest man in California who had lost four close members of his family in 32 months. They discover that Roberta and Jack had really not been getting along when he moved in with her. There were witnesses besides his stepfather to show how tense the relationship had gotten. Jack was described as being surly, belligerent, critical and downright nasty towards his mother. His mother was concerned that Jack was seeing a married woman. Remember, she's Catholic. And she wasn't happy about how much money Jack was spending. Seems Jack got an insurance payout after Ashley's death. Not a lot, a few thousand dollars, but it was burning a hole in his pocket. Roberta told friends she was going to confront Jack and probably kick him out if her suspicions were correct. When Jack found his mother dead, he tells the EMTs that she had come home from work complaining about a headache. He isn't very original, is he? We then end up with a weird situation where we have five pathologists looking at all four people's autopsy results and only a couple of them agree on any of the results. Roberta, Irene and Jeremy had been murdered, but they still couldn't say that for Ashley. On the 18th of July 1995, Jack is arrested on three counts of murder on what would have been the day after Irene's 38th birthday. The death penalty is on the table. Nine days later, Jack's lawyer quits, saying Jack can't afford to pay him. And anyway, he had two other death penalty cases on his tab and couldn't spare the time. 
The lawyer also blamed the press and the sheriff's department, saying, if Mr. Barron did these horrible things, then someone else should be sitting there with him. Someone from the coroner and the sheriff's department. They really blew it. I don't think he was wrong, was he? Jack gets a public defender and probably due to the costs of a death penalty case, that is taken off the table. But still, Jack says he's innocent. Hmm. It takes five years with Jack inside the whole time before the trial in February 2000. It's a long trial. Many financial motives are given, insurance policies and such. But the total only seems to have been around $200,000. Many medical professionals testified to the autopsy results. The prosecution said that all the victims were smothered. Jack's defence is that all of them, all of them, died from a genetic disorder. Even his own mother, who had no actual genetic connection to his wife and children. The only one who testified on Jack's behalf was a specialist in adult patients around something called long QT syndrome, this genetic disorder. Basically, long QT syndrome is usually caused by a faulty gene inherited from a parent. The abnormal gene affects the heart's electrical activity. That's from the NHS's website. Remember, this is back in 2000, so 23 years ago. Irene's parents had been tested, no idea why, and her mother had come back with something a bit squiffy, but within accepted parameters. Her parents are actually on record as saying they didn't even believe in long QT, and 23 years ago it was considered to be on the realms of being a bit of quackery, although now... With all the medical advancements, it is recognised as a disorder. But the actual possibility that his mother also had it in this genetic lottery is bizarre. After 16 days, Jack takes the stand. The prosecution said that Jack got $15,000 in insurance from Irene's death and 13000 each from the death of the two children, along with social security benefits. Jack said it was actually less than that and most of it went towards the funerals. Jack was also sole beneficiary of his mother's estate and that would get him nearly $130,000 from that. I'm unsure why the stepfather wouldn't have been beneficiary. Depends if the son is named or not. Yeah. Hmm. One of the neighbours had testified that Jack had said to her that the bruises on Roberta's face were similar to the bruises on Irene's face when she died. Jack absolutely denied ever saying that. He also denied the testimony about the atmosphere with his mother and being nasty to her. He was on the stand for two days. The jury retired in March of 2000 and deliberated for two days and they returned a verdict of guilty of the first-degree murders of Roberta, Irene and Jeremy. Jack was acquitted of murdering his daughter, Ashley. Because the suffocations involved a special circumstance of multiple murder, Jack, then aged 38, automatically faced life imprisonment without parole 
which was handed down on the 15th of April 2000. Jack, predictably, didn't take it well. He tells the judge that he was convicted on fantasy evidence and ignoring defence arguments that he all died of natural causes and insisted, I have committed no crimes. Remember that letter that Irene wrote to Jack? Well, what all the nicely tied up stories don't tell you is that the letter was found by one of Irene's relatives in some possessions years later and then handed over. And the prosecution think that if Jack had ever received it, he would have destroyed it. It's interesting that Jack tries to use that letter as a point, amongst many, for an appeal in 2003, 2004, 2005 and 2008 on the basis of the trial court erred in admitting into evidence an undelivered letter from the petitioner's wife. I do kind of get where he's coming from, but no doubt they were able to prove that Irene actually wrote it and I'm not even sure that letter would have held much weight for the jury. Cameron, as we wind the episode up, how do you feel about the verdict, Life Without Parole? Do they have any other evidence that isn't circumstantial? No. Bothered me. Or trying to work out whatever his motive might be. Obviously, you can determine someone's intentions without having a physical body of evidence. That's kind of the whole purpose for the thing in the first place. Figuring out someone's mens rea. Um, I don't know. I don't like the idea of it being without parole. But if it is true, then he's had a long history of well, killing four people, murdering four people. I agree with you. I was a little... Mm, there's something adrift here. I think he definitely killed his mother and maybe the wife and Jeremy. But Ashley, how? He was at work. Then I fell over something weird. Well, three things, actually. Remember the Winona Judd thing? Well, her husband at the time was a guy called Arch Kelly. He gets a phone call just before Jack is sentenced. The phone call, word for word, is, Arch, this is Jack. I'm going to get you and Elijah, so you better watch out. Elijah is obviously Winona and Arch's son. Arch goes on to say in this article, I think this man was going to kill me and Elijah and kidnap Winona. My son and I were next on his list. I think he wanted to do away with us so he and Winona could live forever together. They actually had Winona and her family under armed guard because of this. Nowhere does it say that authorities were involved. If it was investigated, all believed. And if it was from prison, there would be recordings. But I absolutely believe the guy was terrified and someone made that call. And investigators found out that Jack had actually told people that he and Winona were dating. The other weird thing I found on a search on an inmate database is that Jack, now aged 63, is in a substance abuse facility in the prison system in Cochrane in California. I know drugs and prison, but that had me very intrigued, but out, I'll find out the why. Final weirdness. Everywhere it is stated that this case is all about how Jack secretly hated his father, which makes even less sense, until you tie in all the things the investigators did 
and we may be entering into woo-woo territory, but they believe it. Irene, Jeremy and Ashley all died on a Sunday, the 7th of the month. Jack's father was born on a Sunday, the 7th of August. To investigators, it also suggested considerable premeditation since the 7th of a month falls on a Sunday so infrequently. Cameron, woo-woo or hmm, maybe. It does sound similar to numerology Yeah. in the Bible. We had these random bits together, therefore this and that. I don't see why. Maybe if he's got some sort of OCD. He's definitely on the spectrum. He's definitely something. Bros into it? trains, got annoyed about cleaning in a certain way and wants to be a conductor. Like He's autistic, definitely. He doesn't understand social interactions. That You said that earlier. Yep. So it could be possibly true that he's kind of timing it with that, but I'm not sure why you would. It could be one of those weird coincidences. Could be. But you can understand as I'm researching it and I'm sat there going, what? Why is it on the 7th of the 7th yeah. of the 7th of the 7th? Yeah. I wondered about his dad and why he so ignored Jack as a child. And going as far as when Jack is in prison, saying Jack is dead to him and he won't visit. I have no idea if it's true, but I found mention that Jack's dad apparently fully believed that he was sterile and Jack wasn't his. Roberta, being so devout, saved herself for marriage. And Jack's dad accusing her of being unfaithful would have been a huge slap in the face. But it seems the marriage finally broke down when the father left Roberta for another woman. Oh, and that girlfriend who possibly wasn't a girlfriend, although Jack and her do seem to have bumped uglies because it became something to do when they were under the same roof. She had been told the night of Irene's death by Jack himself that Irene's headaches were so bad he would have stayed at home with her, but she insisted he go to work as they needed the money. This woman also later remarked that Jack was pale and looked distressed when he told her this. Investigators also have another woman on file who said that Jack would periodically just ask her for sex. He would flatter them, get their attention and then in for the kill. A poor choice of word. When they rejected him, he just ignored them after that. It was a means to an end. Back to that letter that Irene wrote to Jack. Investigators, again, think that she did it because she felt utterly rejected by him. She had put on about £50 after having Ashley and he perhaps had issues with it. One final thing before we wrap up. I think the podcasts and the YouTube videos have used one source, which is why I won't name it as an authority. The reason I think that is that I keep seeing the same words, names and phrases. It seems to be the only place that Munchausen by proxy is mentioned too. I cannot find that in anything else. So who diagnosed or labelled him as such? I thought it didn't fit the mould of such cases. Is it a red herring? But according to the DSM-5 used in the USA, this stipulates that the carer's behaviour is associated with identified deception. So Jack taking Ashley for testing, 
but they're not following up when it didn't show what he wanted it to show could be why this case has been labelled that way. I do have some interesting stats for the case autopsy, however. It's not all women, as I thought, from the one study that seems to have been done. Men are very rarely the primary caregiver, so the frequency has to be low for men yeah. to demonstrate the symptoms of Munchausen by proxy. But Munchausen by proxy, or just Munchausen in general, is such a weird psychological thing to consider. People want to be recognised for their actions or efforts, and it's usually ingrained into our raw, raw structure. Whereas with Munchausen, it's weird because it's like getting admiration for the wrong reasons. It's the energy vampire for someone else's suffering. It's yeah. I don't understand it. Why, why would you understand it when you don't have it? But then at the same time, you can probably rationalize and understand that if someone has been kind of starved for attention before, and then when they get sick and they get a lot of attention, they're getting the feel good. So yeah. they get they've then in their head made a very easy A B type logic train. If I do this, this happens. But hang on, I don't want to be the one that's sick and they're proving that I'm not sick. If I have someone else that I care for to make sick, I get that. And it's a weird triangle, like I said, an energy vampire or a life vampire that siphons off someone else's suffering for their reward. There is also a financial element quite often in these cases. Going back to D.D. Blanchard, she got housing. She got charities that would give her all sorts Anytime she wanted something supposedly for Little Gypsy, somebody from a charity would give her it. There was money coming out of her ears. There are many cases that are along these sort of lines these days. A movie that I've mentioned before, probably in that case that you said earlier, is a movie called Run from 2020. Right. It covers much as by proxy. Right, okay. It's not a documentary or anything. It's a fictional story, but the the crux of the story is surrounding much as by proxy. Yeah. And that is the end of this week's episode. And finally, the victims who should not be forgotten. Irene, aged 34. Jeremy, aged four. Ashley, aged four. And Roberta, aged 52. So everyone, if you like this episode, please consider like, favorite, and subscribing. Do all that good stuff. Everything we're associated with is in the description below. Please consider checking out our Patreon. And if you're on the Patreon, you know what to do. Hang around. Case Autopsy coming up next. Much love. Peace. Bye. Thank you.